Peter chapter 3. We've been in this epistle all fall, and we'll continue on through the new year. We'll probably finish, I suppose, sometime in February. The new section started in chapter 2, verse 11. Last week, we looked at slaves obeying masters. And in our context, we said, you know, it's a lot like employees obeying employers. The week before that, we looked at civilians and citizens obeying the government and what that looks like and why it should be done. And this week, we look at the family relationship and, and how wives are to submit to husbands. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Wives. Likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. So, as I stated uh, right before we read the text, we are now in our third week of a sermon series that's uh, been on submission. Submission is not a real popular idea in our culture. It's not, a, it's not something that people are flocking to do. I, uh, I experienced this week some examples of anti-authority. And uh, it made me go to a search engine on the website and type in anti-authority. One of the first dictionaries that came up defined anti-authority as this. Resents supervision, does not like to be bound by schedules or habits, prefers to do things when they feel ready, appreciation for anarchy, has a need for complete freedom, would rather work for self than a company, questions everything, wants things done their way, prone to behavior problems in school, gets angry when they don't get what they want, subversive, tends to dislike organized religion, challenging. Now, if that doesn't describe the context in which we live, I don't know what does. I would just give you an an encouragement to go um, substitute teach as i've done in the last year go go get out in the community a while and see what the heartbeat of uh, of our culture is and it's one of anti-authority i i know one of our steakhouses down the rule down the road has a uh, has a slogan no rules just right All right and that really fits what our our culture is no rules we are anti-authority and so when we preach a sermon series on submission it makes it a pretty unpopular thing in our, in our culture. But I want to say this. In God's economy, authority is a good thing. It's a purposeful thing. And it also draws a picture in God's economy. When I say it's a good thing, listen, 
even from my own experience. Listen, my parents' authority was a good thing in my life. All right? If it weren't for my parents' authority, I would have been irreverent, I would have been unresponsible, and I would have been arrogant. All right? I would have been a fool. If it weren't for my teacher's authority, I would be ignorant. I would, I would not have any of the uh, capabilities that I have today as far as my education, my training, and then therefore my functionality. If it weren't for my coaches and their authority, I would not be tough. I would not know how to persevere. But because of their authority, they, I, I'm able to, to do that to some degree. And I would even say the police officers that stopped me when I was a young man and said, you better slow down. That was a good thing for me. It established something that I needed in my life. Authority is and can be a very good thing. It's also purposeful. You remember a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the, the purpose of governmental authority? You remember that? We said that the purpose is to prevent evil. And we said it's also to protect the needy and to punish the evildoers. And that is a very good thing. If governmental authority didn't exist and did not prevent evil and protect the needy and punish the evildoers, then our society would be much worse than it even is today. But namely, authority is a picture. You realize that uh, when authority functions in the way that it's supposed to uh, function, and there is an authoritative relationship and a, and a submissive relationship, that it pictures the kind of authority that God has over us. And it's an example of how um, loving authority creates joyful obedience and it's the kind of economy that god has set up to have with his people it was the same economy that that he set up with adam and eve in the garden but not only is it a picture of that and we're going to get to this in just a little while you realize that the authority submission relationship is a picture of our triune god our trinity you realize that that there is authority and submission within the godhead father son and holy spirit and, and though there is complete equality, there is also authority and submission. And when you and I exist in a realm, in a culture, where authority and submission thrive, we are mirroring, we are reflecting the very authority and submission of our triune God. It's a beautiful thing. Now, I want you to look back up at chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. All right? Because this is the governing passage of of our entire section that we're studying. He says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, as elect exiles, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. All right? And then he goes on to talk about civilians obeying the government and slaves obeying masters and now wives obeying husbands and what he's saying is is a lot of these people are going to be not they're not going to be christians and they're going to abuse their authority and they're going to twist their authority and they're going to manipulate you and they're going to deceive you and they're going to lie to you and they're going to mistreat you and they might even physically abuse you and you need to know that ever since adam and eve fell in the garden all right, and sin came upon the world. It cursed the world. And people have been abusing their authority ever since then. We read about it from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation. It happens. You and I have been recipients of abusive authority, and you and I have also been givers of abusive authority. 
We need to know that. And what Peter is saying is saying, look, you're going to have this abuse of authority, but you need to know how to live underneath that and thrive underneath that so that you can win these people, your government officials, your masters, your husbands, your spouses, your children, to the Lord. That's the idea. And so this morning I want to give you three qualities of an honorable wife. Three qualities of an honorable wife. If you're taking notes, you want to write that down. That's our proposition. That's our main theme. Three qualities of an honorable wife. And I actually get the word honorable here back from the passage that we just read where Peter says, have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Have it good. And we talked about how that word meant winsome. It meant attractive. It meant beautiful. It meant say, wow, I love the way that that looks. I love the way it sounds. I want to be around that person. I want to be... Um, in the midst of that person because I, I enjoy this person. All right, that's the kind of beauty and attractiveness and honor. And so here he says, wives, this is how you are to live honorably. And I want to give you the three, the three characteristics. The first one is winsome submission. You can write these down and you can come back to them. I just don't want you to get lost in the sermon. The second one is spiritual beauty. Winsome submission, spiritual beauty, and a robust faith. Winsome submission, spiritual beauty, and a robust faith. And so we see that uh, in verses 1 and 2, then 3 and 4, and then 5 and 6. Let's look at winsome submission. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some don't obey the word, they without a word may be won. They may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. All right, so first of all, the, the instruction here is given to wives. All right, so you ask the question. There's basic Bible, Bible study method. Who is this instruction given to? It's given to wives. What is the instruction? Submit to your own husbands. All right, let's address the word submit first. All right, it's the same exact word that's been used previously that we've talked about in the previous three weeks. All right, it's that military expression that means for subordinates to fall in line underneath their commander and essentially do what the commander gives them the instruction to do. And so when Peter borrows the military term and applies it to life, applies it to government, applies it to these other scenarios, he's saying fall in line and honor and respect whatever instructions that the, your authority is given to you. All right, so be submissive. Now, he says, um, he says be submissive, but he doesn't say um, because you are inferior or because he is smarter or because he is wiser or because he knows exactly what he's doing or because he is almost perfect in his decision-making. He doesn't give reasons why. The fact is, there are many wives, I can even give testimony, who are, who are sometimes wiser, who are sometimes smarter, who are sometimes uh, even more equipped in certain areas. Look, he doesn't give a reasoning why, and it's not because of some inferiority um, or anything like that. It's because of the principle of the matter, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. And, 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 and I, think that, I think that we should at least observe, I think it's 1 Corinthians 11.3, that that says um, Christ, uh, God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of the church, 
and the man is the head of the woman or the husband is the head of the wife. And there is this authority structure that happens. And it doesn't mean that Jesus is, is uh, inferior to the father. It doesn't mean that um, wives are inferior to the husband. It just means this is the order and the plan that God has made. And we'll see, um, we'll see the glory of that in a moment. Now, I do have a question here. Who are wives instructed to be submissive to? Are they, are they, are they instructed to be submissive to men in general? No, they're not. They're, they're not instructed to be submissive to men in general or, or even Christian men. They're instructed to be submissive to their own husbands. All right? Not other husbands, not other men, but their own husbands. Now, the, we could break down the kinds of husbands in a lot of different ways. I mean, we could probably think of ten different kinds of husbands. But for our purposes, and I know Peter would agree with this, there, there, I think there are three big-heading types of husbands that we want to think about for a moment. We want to think about the believing, obedient husband. And wives are to submit to this man who loves Jesus, loves the gospel, wants to honor Christ in the way that he lives his life, in the way that he loves his wife, in the way that he treats his kids, in the way that he works, in the way he contributes to church. Wives are being submissive to that kind of husband. But then you have a believing husband what I would just call disobedient husband, all right? Now, that's the kind of husband who, yes, believes the gospel, yes, um, says he wants to honor God, but there are just patterns in his life that don't line up with the biblical standard. There are patterns in his life that cause him to sometimes abuse his authority. There are patterns in his life where he is obviously not in surrender and submission to the lordship of Christ. And that makes it hard for a Christian wife. makes it hard for a Christian wife to obey a man who says he loves Jesus, and he does, but there are just pockets. There are waves in his, in his life that says, this guy is not in submission. And, and uh, it, it makes it difficult. But, but Peter would speak to this uh, woman and say, um, even though he's not a, a good and godly leader right now, there's a level of submission that you are to bring. And then the third the third kind of uh, husband, I think, is just the unbelieving husband. The unbelieving husband. And I think that this is the primary focus of Peter in this passage. And let me, let me just say something about these three, the, these three kinds of husbands. I think that if you're a wife and you have a husband in the first category who is good and godly, he's not perfect, but he wants to honor God, if you submit, it will make a sweet marriage sweeter. It'll make a good marriage better. It, it'll make an awesome relationship that is not only wonderful to go home to every day or wonderful to prepare for him to come home every day, but it'll be a testimony to the watching world that marriage is a glorious thing. In the relationship where um, the wife is seeking to submit to a Christian husband who obviously is disobedient in ways, she needs to be thinking to herself, I love my husband, I want to honor the Lord, but I also want to win my husband in areas of his disobedience. I don't, want to, I don't want to be antagonistic toward him. I don't want to belittle him. I don't want to berate him. I don't want to accuse him of, of, uh, of any uh, bad things, especially spiritual things. But I want to win the areas of his disobedience over to obedience. But then in the, in the area I think is the, the most challenging is being unequally yoked having a believing wife and an unbelieving husband, 
And I think that while this is the most challenging, this can also be the relationship that brings God greatest glory. For this reason, if a wife consistently, lovingly submits and serves her unbelieving husband, you got two things that are going on here. She ultimately might win him to Christ. And second of all, she is going to glorify God like nobody's business through an entire lifetime of marriage. I'm going to read to you a couple of examples in the, just a couple of minutes. But that's the, that's, the great, um, that's the great opportunity that a believing wife has with an unbelieving husband. But don't you think we need to answer the question, why would uh, a believing wife have an unbelieving husband? Isn't that a good question to ask? Well, I think that Peter speaks into a context in which people are coming to know Jesus left and right all over the Roman Empire because Paul and the apostles are going out preaching everywhere. And it's likely that women were going to synagogues or women were going to other outdoor events where these preachers of the gospel were coming and God, the Holy Spirit, comes down in power and saves these women. And then they go back to their homes and um, proclaim to their husbands that I've been saved. There's a Messiah. His name is Jesus. And I knew that I had a sin problem. I knew that I had a rebellion problem. I knew that there was a condemnation that was sitting over me. I didn't know how to reconcile it. But now I found that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that I'm supposed to live and can't. He died the, the condemnatory death that I'm supposed to die. But now I won't. He rose from the dead and he's alive just like now I am spiritually alive. And husband, I love you. I want you to be saved as well. If you give your life to Jesus, we can have a marriage that worships and honors the Messiah and we'll, we'll, live, uh, we'll live happily and joyfully and we'll live in heaven forever. And likely, wives would go home and give a story like that. And husbands, because they were completely in authority and because women basically had no rights in first century Roman Empire, they were supposed to look pretty and be quiet. The husband oftentimes wouldn't have anything to do with this story wouldn't have anything to do with the Messiah, wouldn't have anything to do with the gospel. And Peter is speaking into a context like that because I know Peter would echo the words of Paul and he would say to any, spou any spouses-to-be, any, any marriage, um, people who are potentially going to be married, do not be unequally yoked. Do not be unequally yoked. Do not enter into a marriage where you are a Christian and the other person is not a Christian. And I think I really just want to hit the pause button right now. And I want to speak to our single ladies, young ladies, even uh, girls. I just want to tell you, um, do not entertain the thought of dating, courting, or in any kind of exclusive relationship with a man who does not obviously love Jesus and place the gospel as his priority and the church his primary area of fellowship. Don't even go there at all, all right? He, he may have a pretty smile and pretty eyes and a big bank account and a nice job, but I'm telling you what, if you give yourself to that man who does not love Jesus, you are setting yourself up for misery. Do not go there. And I know Peter would say the same. All right, so what is Peter's primary point here? Look back down at the text if you would. He says, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands that even if some don't obey the word. This, in other words, if some of them aren't Christians, all right? And he's saying, listen, 
without a word, they may be won by the conduct of their wives. Okay, so you've preached the gospel to them. You've shared how much you love Jesus, and, and he's rejected it. What I'm saying to you is don't worry about continuing to preach. You're, obvi- you're obviously um, annoying him. He has said no to you. He said, I don't want to have anything to do with that. It's okay. You can stop preaching with your lips and make sure you're preaching with your life. Make sure you're preaching by the the content of your character, by how you respond to Him, by how you serve Him, by how you love Him in special ways, in thoughtful ways, in in caring ways. All right? Now, he says the words chaste conduct that is accompanied by fear. Some of your versions use the word purity and reverence. I think that's a really clear description of the kind of uh, mentality and the kind of attitude that a woman is to have underneath uh, her husband's authority, purity and reverence. And what he's essentially saying is speak pure words, all right? Um, ha- have a pure attitude. Think the best. Don't, don't think about your husband. Oh, he's nothing but a depraved, rotten, dirty, scoundrel s- sinner. Think about him in the sense of, oh, who he could be in Jesus Christ. How God could transform his life. Think about him in, in positive, pure ways. Respond to his criticism with purity. Don't accuse him. Don't be the wife who is constantly accusing your husband of folly, constantly accusing him of bad leadership, constantly accusing him of passivity, constantly accusing him of of different uh, areas of failure. Don't criticize him. Don't manipulate him. Don't deceive him. Don't slander him. And and we all know that this kind of thing happens when a, a spouse, and it can be a husband too, don't get me wrong, but but a a Christian woman who is so frustrated that her husband won't love God comes to church or is around other ladies and talks about her non-Christian husband in a way that is certainly less than flattering. That is dangerous, it is not helpful, and it's not going to contribute to the husband's salvation. Okay, It doesn't mean be dishonest about the husband, but it it does mean don't have malice in your heart and share that malice and that slander with others and then when he says reverence he said have a reverence for your marriage respect the position that that your husband has honor him listen to him follow his leadership there is a sense of reverence and and respect and honor that a woman is to give to the man simply because of the nature of the relationship that the man is the head of the wife and he is to be a picture of loving sacrificial care for his wife and the wife is to respond to him in the likewise manner now i know that phil brought up that francis of assisi uh, quote a couple of weeks ago when uh, he said uh, preach the gospel at all times and uh, when necessary use words and we're familiar with that Um, what we stated then is also true now look the husband is not going to be one to christ without the preaching of the gospel all right I think that Peter is going under the impression that the gospel has already been preached and it ultimately will be preached to him in order to win him to Christ. But what Peter is saying is, let your life do the talking now. Let your life do the walking. I don't know if you've ever heard of Augustine or not. Augustine lived in the 300s A.D. In 397 A.D., he's a great theologian, by the way. You ought to read him. Um, He... He just has some remarkable thoughts about the glory of God and how we fit into God's glory and how we can image His glory. But uh, he wrote a book called Confessions. 
And in this book, Confessions, it's really one long prayer. It's a confession to God. If you ever pick it up and read it, all of his words are directed to God. He's praying, and he's crying out to God, he's confessing to God, he's rejoicing in God. It's a beautiful thing, but tucked in this book, Confessions, Augustine speaks of his mother's influence on his wife, on his dad, all right? His mother's name was Monica, I believe, and his, uh, his dad's name was Patricius. And listen to the confession that he makes regarding his mom's influence on his dad. And he's talking to the Lord. She served her husband as her master and did all she could to win him for you, speaking to him of you by her conduct, by which you made her beautiful. Finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. Augustine's mom experienced 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And then verse 12. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Augustine's dad gave his life to Christ because of the example that Augustine's mom set over a period of decades. And that's a great example. I, I went to um, school in high school um, who, with a friend whose um, mom was a Christian and committed and whose, uh, uh, whose dad was utterly and completely not a Christian in just about every single way you could think of it. But is week in and week out, month in and month out, year in and year out. She loved her husband. She served her husband. He worked shift work, and she would get up and make his lunch in the middle of the night. She would, um, she would do all kinds of things for her husband. And I'm telling you what, it was a beautiful thing to behold. Now, that was over 20 years ago. I don't know if he has ever come to Christ or if he's still in rebellion. But I know this, that as a young man, as a teenager, watching the kind of way that this Christian woman submitted to this non-Christian husband and served him and loved him, it was a beautiful picture of service. Look, look down at the text again at chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. He says, wives, likewise. Likewise. I think that he's... He, this word likewise or in the same manner likely refers back to servants of so being submissive to masters and also citizens to government officials. But it's right off the heels of the gospel. It's right on the heels of Jesus submitting himself to the Father and saying, I am going to um, serve you, uh, Lord, uh, God the Father, and I'm going to submit myself to you. What I want you to do right now I want you to hold your place in 1 Peter 3. And I want you to turn back to Philippians chapter 2. It's a very famous passage. Philippians chapter 2. And ladies, I want this to be an encouragement to you. I feel like, I feel like submission gets a really bad rap in our, in our culture. I feel like it's, it gets relegated to something that God never intended it to be. And I want you to see that from Philippians chapter 2. In verses 1 through 4, he says, essentially humble yourself 
before one another and have unity with one another, essentially submit to one another. And he gives the basis on which to do this. In verse 5, he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now, a better translation is the ESV. Anybody reading the ESV? Anybody Wayne, would you be willing to read out loud um, the verse 6 of the ESV right there for us? Yes. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, God the Son was equal with God the Father. Equal. Not inferior. But he said, I'm going to humble myself and I'm not going to hold on to my equality. I'm not going to seize it. I'm not going to project it onto everybody else. I'm not going to say, hey, look at me. Hey, give me all the glory. Give me all the honor. Give me all everything that I do because I'm just as important as the Father is. He didn't say that. He gave up that right. Now let's continue to read then. He says, but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And then catch nine. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name the point that i want to make here is that the son is infinitely glorious the son is infinitely high in in his in his honor in his and even in his authority and his equality with god the father and god the spirit but he said, you know what, I'm not going to exercise that. I'm not going to exercise it. I'm not even going to hold on to it tightly. I'm going to go and serve. And in serving, I am ultimately not only going to honor him, but I'm also going to re- receive honor in the end. Now, I'm not trying to draw a one-to-one correlation between wives submitting to their husbands and Christ submitting to uh, the Father. But I will say, that's the pattern that you have. And in the same way that Jesus was glorious in his servanthood and in his submission, you also will be glorious in your servanthood and submission. And in a similar way, but certainly much smaller, as Jesus ultimately receives glory because of his submission, wives, you will receive glory because of your submission. You will be honored through your servant attitude. That's the, I don't know if there's any greater motivation that you possibly could have, wives, than the example of your Savior. All right, let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 3 and get going here. There you have the winsome submission. Winsome submission. Second, we have spiritual beauty. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Don't let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. just want to make two observations here. He gives a negative instruction... And then he gives a positive instruction. He gives a prohibition, and then he gives kind of, this is what you need to do, all right? And in the negative instruction, he's essentially saying this. Don't prioritize 
physical, external beauty over spiritual beauty. Don't do that. It is a big mistake. Don't prioritize external beauty over spiritual beauty. Now, he gives three very clear examples. And I love the examples because they're, they're, they're kind of headings for even the way that our world operates today. Arranging the hair, wearing gold, putting on fine apparel. He's really addressing physical beauty, jewelry and accessories, and your clothes. He's saying, look, don't get all worked up about your hair, your face, your makeup, your fingernails, your toenails, your skin tone, your, your body shape, etc. He's saying, don't get all worked up about your rings and your bracelets and your necklaces and your earrings and your purses. Don't get all worked up about your dresses and your blouses and your skirts and, and your shoes and, and, and so forth and so on. The, the thing is this, is in first century Roman Empire, because women were relegated to a very low spot in society, they, didn't, they weren't respected, their ideas weren't respected, their thoughts weren't, their opinions weren't, their input wasn't, their involvement wasn't. Women were essentially relegated to looking pretty and serving whatever the, the husband or the dad said to do. And think about it, if you're in that context, if you're in a context where your inner beauty, your thoughts, your ideas, your longings, your desires, your... You know, um, your input is completely relegated to to nothingness. Then, what are you going to be prone to prioritize in order to be received, to be accepted, to be loved, to be cared for? Your outward beauty, right? So that if I if I wear my hair a certain way, if I put on the right kind of clothes, if I make sure that uh, I have the right kind of accessories, then I'm going to get looked at. I'm going to get winked at. I'm going to get eyes coming my way, and in that way, I'll get the acceptance and the reception that I'm looking for. That's the kind of temptation that women would have during that time. And so he gives this strong exhortation. Listen, don't, don't prioritize that. Now, I'm just going to tell you, 21st century is a little different, but it's also exactly the same. It's exactly the same. Um, women are so prone to find their value in, in looking good. I, I studied for a number of hours at the local bookstore uh, yesterday, and I walked um, past the back aisle. If you guys have been in the bookstore, you know that the, the back of the store um, are hundreds and hundreds of magazines. All right, And I think the majority of them are directed toward women. All right, And while I didn't really pause as I was walking back to the back corner, um, I did not see any magazines that talked about inner beauty, a gentle or quiet spirit, loving submission, honoring God. But you are going to see magazines about how to look great in 30 days, how to accessorize, how to do this, how to win this man, how to do, you know, all, all of those things. Y'all know what you see in the grocery stores. You know what you see at the bookstore. Our world places absolute priority on physical beauty external adornment and really places no value on inner beauty and what i find is ironic about this is the way that beautiful women outwardly beautiful women are put to the shelf as soon as they don't meet the certain criteria think about think about um actresses that you've known and that you've enjoyed watching act in movies and shows and things like that. And it's like, y'all, it's like they've got like a 15-year shelf life. 
And, and once they're done, once that 15 years is up, and maybe there's some wrinkles, or maybe the body shape is not exactly the way that it once was, and that Hollywood has no, no place for you. Come back in about 10 or 15 years, and you can serve as a grandmother. You know, you can be in a movie about, you know, uh, you know being the mom of, of somebody, but we just don't really have any need for you anymore. And, and uh, it, it, I think that it is so ironic to see that, and, uh, and yet the world continues to place priority on outward adornment and so one of the one of the most tragic realities in our world is women who work hard to look beautiful on the outside but don't work hard at all on being beautiful on the inside because outward beauty has a really short shelf life and inward beauty has a really 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 long shelf life he uses the word incorruptible it's the same word that he uses in chapter 1, verse 4, incorruptible, to describe your inheritance. You know what kind of inheritance you have? An eternal one. One that never fades. It's not going anywhere. It only gets better and better and better. And Peter uses the word incorruptible to describe the inner beauty of a woman who works more on her inside than she does on her outside. So it's a tragedy when women work more on the outside than on the inside. Now, I do want to say this. The solution to the problem is not wearing less jewelry, not, not fixing your hair less, n- not wearing um, the kind of clothes that you want to wear. That's not the solution to the problem. Now, that, that actually could contribute more to a, another bigger problem. The solution to the problem is saying that I realize that... Um, God has a, a view of beauty that is different than the world's and is even sometimes different than my own. And I want to be more concerned about God's definition of beauty and, and his valuation of beauty than what the world says and what um, I say. I, I, do, I do think this, y'all. I think that Christian women can look at outward adornment in one of three ways. And I think that probably... Uh, in our church, um, some of these, uh, maybe one is, is manifested in at least some of our, of our ladies. You can demonize outward adornment. You can say outward adornment is nothing. It doesn't mean anything. It's, uh, it's unholy. It's ungodly. You know, just give me a t-shirt and, and a pair of jeans and it doesn't matter what I look like because, it, you know, God places no value on it. You demonize outward beauty. And then, on the other side, we say, listen, we're... God's made us in His image, and we need to mirror His beauty, and so I'm going to be as beautiful as I possibly can. I'm going to spend hours upon hours on how I look, and and in some way that's a good thing. And God would say, no, that's not necessarily a good thing. I think instead of demonizing and instead of idolizing it, what we need to do is just understand it. And let me tell you what it means to understand physical beauty. Physical beauty and outward adornment is to be a mere reflection of your spiritual beauty and your inner beauty. Okay? It's just to be an expression of it. All right? so, so you love God. You care for His glory more than you care for your own. You care for the good of other men more than your own attention. You care to look excellently because God's glory is excellent. You want to dress in such a way that adorns the very doctrine of God that you were taught in the gospel. And so it doesn't mean that you're audacious, but it also doesn't mean you're sloppy. It doesn't mean that you're trying to get attention, but it also doesn't mean that you don't care a lick about what, the way that you dress. There's a middle road that says, I'm going to adorn myself in such a way that honors the God of the gospel. 
Recently, my family went on a trip, and we were uh, stopped off at a gas station, take a potty break, get some more gas, and there was a group of people who were there that were obviously a part of some religious or Christian church or organization. And the women all were dressed alike. They had on like white shirts and long denim uh, skirts and all of their hair was exactly the same and uh, no jewelry, no outward adornment. Their hair was not braided. And the interesting thing is we were there a little while and got to observe the dynamic of these women with the other women and the dynamic of the women with the men, it was an extraordinarily disturbing picture to to behold. These women seemed to be oppressed. They didn't have vibrancy. They they didn't have seemingly life. They seemed to be upset. And and you look over at the men, and they are dressed however they want to dress. They're carrying iPhones on their their hips. They're driving a nice car. It's like, there is something wrong with this picture here. But what has happened is, likely, they have taken passages like this, and men who lead in churches and in families abuse what Peter is actually trying to say, oppress women so that, so that the men can get what they want, and also um, subvert the women to a place that they never were intended to be. This is a tragedy. I just want to say to you, husbands, um, you are not commanded to control or dominate or intimidate or dictate anything to your wife. All right? It's interesting, if you read the New Testament, you're never going to see where husbands are commanded um, to make your wife submit. You just don't see it. Wives are commanded to submit to their husbands, but husbands are commanded to lovingly sacrifice for their wives. That's what your command is. And so, follow it. Now, the positive instruction is prioritize spiritual beauty over everything else. Look down at the text. Um, chapter 3, I think it's verse, uh, let's see, verse 4. He says, Rather let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. I just want to bring out one, um, one word here, this word precious. Um, it is the same word that is used in Mark chapter 14, verse 3, that is um, translated as expensive or costly in your Bibles. In Mark 14, there is a woman who comes in and uh, with this very expensive and costly bottle of perfume. And instead of selling it or using it over time, uses it to pour it over Jesus' head and anoint him. And the disciples look at this. And the text says they saw that this was costly. This was expensive. This was a valuable. And they got really, really upset that they would spend such expensive uh, fragrance upon him. They were valuing something that was physical, material. What Peter is saying in our verse is that what God finds as valuable and expensive and costly is the inner person of a, of a quiet and submissive heart where a woman loves her husband, serves him, cares for him, and exudes the very kind of mentality that Jesus had when he left heaven to come to earth. This word gentle and quiet, y'all, I just want you to know, this is not innately 
a feminine term. I want you to know that. Gentle and quiet is not an innately or inherently feminine idea. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, Jesus said, Come, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, for I will give you rest. And he said, For I am gentle, I am lowly in spirit. All right? Same kind of verbiage that's using. He's just saying, I'm humble. I'm willing to submit. I'm, I'm willing to be meek. I'm willing to be gracious. I'm willing to be loving. I'm willing to be caring. That's the idea. And he's saying, Peter is essentially saying, be like Christ. Okay, let's get to our, let's get to our third characteristic of an honorable wife. It's a robust faith. A robust faith. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves being submissive to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Just take up a few things here. Um, the, the title is Robust Faith because that's what Peter is commending. He's commending a big, healthy, large faith in God. All right? And so he talks about the holy women. And I don't know precisely who he has in mind, but I thought about Hannah, who entrusted herself to God in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2. I thought specifically about Ruth, who we've been studying on Thursday nights. Was Ruth just not a beautiful picture of love and submission and faithfulness and loyalty? I also thought about Esther. If you know the story of Esther, you realize that she was actually married to a king who was not a believer. And the king had basically said, yeah, he told his one of his... Uh, underlings he said yeah you can have the israelite race destroyed yeah just go ahead and just kill them all and esther um had submitted to her husband but willingly and winsomely came to her husband and risked even her own death to try to win her people her people's lives and she did but the example that he chooses to use here is sarah now we could have a time going through genesis from genesis 12 all the way into the 30s, looking and examining this lady, Sarah. And it's interesting that he uses her as an example. But I was reading a book this week, on, uh, and, and in a chapter on Sarah, I want to just quote um, this, this book, 12 Extraordinary Women, on this person, Sarah. I want you to get, to get an idea of her, okay? Let's be honest. There are times in the biblical account when Sarah comes off as a bit of a shrew. She was the wife of the great patriarch Abraham. So we tend to think of her with a degree of dignity and honor. But reading the biblical account of her life, it's impossible not to notice that she sometimes behaved badly. She could throw fits and tantrums. She knew how to be manipulative. And she was even known to get mean. At one time or another, she exemplified almost every trait associated, uh, typical character of a churlish woman. She would be impatient, temperamental, conniving, cantankerous, Cruel, flighty, pouty, jealous, erratic, unreasonable, a whiner, a complainer, and a nag. By no means was she uh, always the perfect model of godly grace and meekness. In fact, there are hints that she may have been something of a pampered beauty, a classic prima donna. Scripture remarks repeatedly how stunningly attractive she was. And wherever she went, she instantly received favor and privilege because of her good looks. That kind of thing can spoil the best of women. And then I skip a little place, and then he says, Fortunately, there was more to Sarah than that. She had important attributes as well as glaring weaknesses. 
She had strings. Scripture actually commends her for her faith and steadfastness. Although there were those terrible flashes of petulance and cruelty, Sarah's life is a life of holiness characterized by humility, meekness, hospitality, faithfulness, deep affection for her husband, sincere love toward God, and hope that never died. In fact, the New Testament enshrines her in the hall of faith because she judged God faithful who had promised. So that gives you an overview of the life of Sarah. And I think the reason that that Peter uses Sarah as the example is he's saying, look, I'm not telling you, you know, here is a perfect woman and you need to watch and observe her perfection. He's saying, I'm giving to you an imperfect woman who had all kinds of issues and problems, but she also loved me. She had a concern for my glory, wanted to honor my glory by submitting to her husband and living it out. Even in the midst of her sin, she would repent, submit, and honor me as her God. I think that it's really interesting that Peter does not highlight and emphasize so much her trust in Abraham, but her trust in God himself. That she entrusted herself to God. That she loved God and wanted to serve and honor God with her life. And in that way, she had a robust faith. And um, all women who are wives should um, fulfill the same type of attributes. All right. Let's stop the exposition there. I'm going to just try to spend just like um, four minutes. I know we're running over just a little bit uh, on time, but I I want to just um, hammer home a couple of principles because I want this to be helpful to you guys. If you're taking notes, it might be a good time to write a few things down. First thing I want to say um, is that um, beauty in our culture is a subjective thing. It's a subjective thing. You realize some of some of you ladies who are beautiful according to our culture, if we if you were to take a plane ride to another part of the world, you would not be so beautiful. And some of you who are not so beautiful in our culture, if you were to go to another culture, you'd be very beautiful. Beautiful beauty is very subjective in our world, but it is very objective in the sight of God. The objectiveness of it is a spirit of humility toward God, submission toward your husband, love for God, a desire to win your husband, a desire to show others the sufficiency and power of God in the midst of a difficult marriage, and a desire to honor God and bring Him glory in all things. All right, the second thing that I want to say is that spiritual beauty is rooted in your heart. It's rooted in your heart. And if you, if you want to be beautiful, you've got to do a few things. First, you've got to be born again. You've got to be saved by the grace of God through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. And then that will give you a new heart. And once you have a new heart, you then have new inclinations. And once you have new inclinations and desires, you then can submit your entire life to God. But you need to be teachable and you need to position your life around other godly women who care more about inner beauty than physical beauty. Listen, if you spend your time being influenced by women who are more concerned about physical beauty than inner beauty, then you're going to be more concerned about that. But if you learn from and listen to and submit to older, wiser, or more mature Christian women who obviously value 
the glory of God and the honor of God and to cherish their own hearts. They're Proverbs 4.23 women who guard their heart in all wisdom and protect it because they know that it's the source of their entire life, then you will do well. Now, I want to just say a couple more words. All right? Wives, be winsome in your conduct, prioritize spiritual beauty, and entrust yourself to God. Single ladies, do this. Pray for a godly husband. Pray for a godly husband. And in the relationships that you are to submit, submit now. Submit to your dad. Submit to your teachers. Submit to your boss. Because you will establish a pattern of submission to your rightful authorities that will then carry over to your marriage. Prioritize spiritual beauty over physical beauty. And this is a little bit of an odd one but do things that will increase your faith in God. Do things that will increase your faith in God. What I find is that when, when women are, are really sheltered and they don't, they're not forced to live a life that entrusts themselves to God, they, get, they then get into a marriage and immediately they have to start entrusting themselves to God and they don't know what that looks like. They've been living off of the faith and the trust of their family members and their church family and now they actually have to have faith on their own. And so I would say, I would say, go on a mission trip. Serve in the church. Serve in the back with the children and teach them. Or serve in the community. Or serve at Save a Life. Or, or do something that's going to require faith where God's got to come through on your behalf because you trust in Him to do it. And when you establish a pattern of trusting in God for those kinds of things, you can trust in God the way that Sarah trusted in God in the midst of a very difficult marriage with Abraham. So, uh, men, I've got some words for you. Single men, I've got some words for you. And even children, I, I have some words for you as well. I'll either put those in an email this week or I'll save them till next week when we look at husbands in chapter 3, verse 7. Thanks for your patience with me this morning. I want to pray and then um, come up and we'll sing.